0: Genesis chapter 29, verses 13 to 30. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. The second Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 30, verses uh, verses 22, to chapter 31, verse 13. And this is on page 30 of your Bibles. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, You know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. "'But now, when may I do something for my own household?' "'What shall I give you?' he asked. "'Don't give me anything,' Jacob replied. "'But if you will do this one thing for me, "'I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. "'Let me go through all your flocks today "'and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, "'every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. "'They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day, he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats all that had white on them and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees, and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs, so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves and made the rest face the streaked and dark colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus, he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals, so they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban, and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to to own large flocks, and female and male servants, and camels and donkeys." Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the, saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. It's uh, good to have you with us. If you're joining us if you're new or returning after a while, uh, and it's nice to have the kids in the building today. It's a reminder for us of um, the full spectrum of God's church, isn't it? Uh, we are reflecting on uh, the first book of the New of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, which is essentially. Um, the starting point for the story of the Bible, of course, but the starting point, the Bible claims, for the story of humanity as well. And so my question is, when you think about the cause of humanity and the case of humanity, ha- where do you fall? Are you a glass half-empty or a glass-half-full kind of person? This might be a, 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 just a, a, a more general question about your character. Are you a, a person who generally sees things as positive Uh, or someone who sees things as negative. Uh, In our staff team, we have a bit of a spectrum of this. Uh, I'll leave it to you to decide who's who, uh, and what I am as well. The greater question, of course, is what is God like? Is he a glass-half-empty kind of guy, or is he a glass-half-full kind of person? Well, when we come to Genesis, the the unfortunate tenor of the whole book is glass half empty starting from genesis 3 really and onwards the story is a sobering reflection on the state of the world and of humanity and if you are with us after a few weeks genesis start the, the part of genesis that we focused on the main portion of the book starts with the choosing of Um, abraham out of obscurity mind you to be blessed and so you hear you have these this reference to god's blessings repeatedly but having been blessed the story of abraham is a story of a man who fails at many moments of testing to kind of hold on to god's promises of course he has spectacular moments of success as well After Abraham, we meet Isaac, his son, but more importantly, the story quickly shifts to Jacob, who we heard of last week and again this week. And in Jacob's story, uh, we see kind of God's God's picture of humanity, and it's not particularly uh, enjoyable. The account that we meet here, Jacob has been travelling through the wilderness. He eventually comes to a well. He meets Rachel who it turns out is like a distant relative of his family. Well, not that distant, actually. He is Laban's daughter, and Laban is his mother's brother. This brings great joy to him. He has a sense of having left his family, wandering through the desert to kind of trip over Laban's family. And so he comes, he meets Laban, and after a, a short period of kind of hospitality, Laban gets him to work. He's deeply in love with Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel. And so Laban says, You work for me for seven years, and I'll give you Rachel. They come up with this agreement. But of course, infamously, after the great wedding feast, uh, Laban brings in Leah. And Jacob, who must have been horrendously drunk, and of course, it was the. Palestine in the 8th century BC, so there's no electricity at night time, doesn't realize who his new bride is till the morning. And so he realizes at the end, in the, when the evening came, Laban took in his daughter Leah. And in the morning, having realized this, Jacob says to Laban, What is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And that question, or that rhetorical question, I guess, he's, he's not really looking for an answer, he's just he's perplexed, is he's actually the story of Jacob and this interaction with Laban's life as well. It is a story of deception, and it is, in a sense, God's picture of the world in action, a world filled with deception and lies. From Genesis, where the devil brings in the first lie about God, lies kind of permeate the storyline of, of of the world and of God's people. Here he is, Jacob, a great forefather, and he is deceiver and deceived. In fact, later on, Jesus will describe the devil as the father of all lies, probably lefla- reflecting on the Genesis moment in Genesis three, when um, the devil deceives Adam and Eve or lies to them about God's intentions. But also reflecting, I guess, on the reality that we, the Bible sees this as a hallmark of the world in which the devil is exercising his influence. The world is this place filled with deception. But the negativity of Jacob's story goes beyond that. It's not just a case of look at how bad people are, it is look at how pathetic and hopeless life is. Because even Jacob's life is a life of great disappointment. Deception and disappointment are like the hallmarks of this world that we encounter in Genesis. Uh, Jacob has travelled through the wilderness, come across Rachel, fallen in love with her, there's this throwaway line that working for Laban for seven years felt like a few days because of his love for Rachel. Our individualised, romanticised eyes of the Western mindset might think that that's a great thing, although there's a sense in which maybe he's, there's an obsessiveness to Jacob in that moment as well um, but when he you know when he goes through the wedding feast eventually and then he wakes up in the morning this is how the Moses puts it he says when morning came there was Leah I mean it kind of makes a smirk but also when you think about it seven years Jacob has longed to be the husband of Rachel and then in this morning what exceeding disappointment for him Right, this thing that he's, he's been solely focused on. And Laban has deceived him. And this experience of disappointment, of course, for Jacob is real, but for poor Leah is on a whole other level. Because Leah, of course, we know, we're told then that Jacob agrees to work a further seven years in order to also have Rachel as his wife. And so he, after the one week of marriage celebrations for Leah, he marries Rachel. And Leah spends her life then married to a man who doesn't love her. We have this, um, this kind of very tragic reflection. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. In fact, we're told a few verses later uh, that Leah bears three children to Jacob. Rachel can't, she, she can't bear children, but Leah can at this point in time and each time she brings forth a child, her hope is that this will in some ways win approval from Jacob finally, she'll be treasured because she can bring forth children and so Moses says now at last, uh, he quotes Leah, he says now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. But that's not the case, Leah's whole life is this life of disappointment. Imagine being married to someone who every morning you wake up realise they love your sister more than you. And no matter what you do, no matter how much effort or energy you pour into them, this person will never love you the way you want them to love you. And the sad, the sad picture of Genesis is a world where the glass is not even half empty. It's empty. It's filled rather with deception and disappointment. Now, for some of us, this is startling because maybe we've come to the Bible and to Christianity with a view that actually it's kind of an escapist religion. (laughs) It's It's a place you go to to escape the world rather than to be confronted by it. And yet here we have, in Genesis a very dark picture of the nature of humanity. We want to believe, in fact, that everything is kind of on a trajectory onward and upward. So maybe we're willing to look at Genesis and say, well, here's the starting point, but thankfully things have improved. I mean, after all, we have electricity now. You wouldn't make the same mistake Jacob made, would you? (laughs) And you know what? That kind of comes, comes from a certain level of truth. Of course, the world is better in many ways than 8,000 BC. The world is far better. Uh, And the way we treat women and we think about household relationships is far better than it might have been at that cultural moment. Technology seems to mitigate in many ways against a lot of the things that are hard about life. I talked to someone recently about um, the impact of you know, climate change, for example, they were just a fundamentally optimistic person. They said, well, I think we'll find a technological solution for this because that's been our experience, especially over the last 50 to 100 years. As technology has sped up, we have an expectation that life generally improves. But that's not really the full story. Uh, one, uh, one academic, Terry Eagleton, writes this, he says, It's true that some things get better in some respects, but some things get worse. We're also faced with the planetary devastation, the threat of nuclear conflict, the spreading catastrophe of AIDS and other deadly viruses, neo-imperial zealotry, mass migrations of the dispossessed, political fanaticism, and a reversion to Victorian-type economic inequalities. Now, that's written in the 90s, but you could tick a lot of them off even now, can't you? The point is, when we are sober about what what we reflect on the world, the Bible's story is not just a story for thousands of years ago, perhaps a great myth, but is an insightful reflection on the reality of the world that we live in. And as much as we would like to escape from that, we must, and the Bible confronts us with the reality of this world that we encounter Of course, we kind of have the luxury in this part of Sydney for many people to escape into kind of the comfort of our private space and ignore much of this. But the Bible, one of the Bible's great challenges and services to us is to confront us with this. This is the world you live in. And you know what? This is who you are to some extent as well. In fact, what's really interesting about the story of Jacob is how it, how it reflects the, the kind of depravity of the world, a sense in which the past clearly impacts the present and the future. Jacob's story has all these little, these little references to things that have happened in the past. I mean, his deception... Or his decept- being deceived by Laban seems to parallel Jacob's own deception of his father earlier in the story. There's a reference to Leah's weak eyes, which in part is just kind of painting Leah off against as Rachel. But Isaac, if you look back at it in the story of um, Jacob deceiving Isaac in his tent, he's just so described as having weak eyes. There's a sense in which What Jacob did to Isaac now comes back to revisit him here with Laban. And just like Isaac preferentially treated Esau and Rebekah preferentially treated Jacob, Jacob will preferentially treat his children from Rachel over and above his children from Leah. The story of Jacob says to us, what you sow, you reap. A great, a great um, principle that Paul brings about in Galatians as well. You sow sin, you reap sin. You know, sometimes we think about our life as these separate moments of past and present, as if what you did in the past you can kind of draw a line in and then move forward from, unencumbered by that if you choose to. We have that mindset in our society too, I think sometimes, where we would just like to forget the things that have happened in the past as if they don't have any flow-on impact into the future. But the Bible says to us, no, no, what mistakes we made in the past, what, what we encountered in the past, also affects us in the present. I'm going to use a dated reference, but it might work for some people here. You know that song, Cats in the Cradle? Well, it's a reflection of this biblical wisdom here, this biblical story. The Father sings a song... Right? about how when he had a child, he had, too much, he had too much on. He didn't have enough time for him. He says, my son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, ah, not today. I've got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he, he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. He said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know, I'm going to be like him. You know this song. But then, if you know the song well... The interesting twist is, of course, in the last verse, where the son is too busy to visit the father. And uh, Harry Chaplin's point is that the sins of our, our past revisit us. We're not free of them. Unfortunately, they shape us. Now, the Bible, in part, is telling us Jacob's story to warn us. The way we raise our children, if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an if you're a member of our congregation who has responsibility for young people in our midst, the way we raise them will shape them fundamentally. If you want your children to know and love the Lord Jesus, you can't just hope that it will happen. Um, When we disciple our children, our faith, what we really think, what we really put into practice in our own life, what we prioritize ultimately shapes them. It's a warning. It brings us some kind of shape and direction for us. It helps us to make decisions. But it also is a sobering truth. The reality is, you'll never do it perfectly. And you can't go back and make up for your mistakes. But you are shaped by them. We're all shaped by them. When I was uh, at high school, I spent year 8 to year 12 in a boarding house. Now, that was a fairly challenging place. It's kind of devoid of any kind of emotional support structures uh, because teenagers were caring for teenagers in many ways. It made me a very resilient person emotionally, I must say. It makes me someone who can kind of ride out the emotional highs and lows without kind of going on the journey myself in many ways. That's a benefit. But it also can make me a person who lacks compassion and empathy at times as well i am shaped by the things in my past now of course for some of us that feels unfair we don't choose the things if we were, we don't choose the things that we go through as a child it certainly lays a responsibility on us if we're parents but we don't choose the things that we go through as a child and that might feel unfair but what what god is describing here is just a pattern of the way the world works in lamentations the writer says our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities this is a repeating theme in the old testament actually of bearing the iniquities of our forefathers not because god thinks oh i'm punished them but now i'm going to punish no but because the nature of sin is it ultimately does you you do sin and then it does you and, and you know Pippi beautifully described it for us in a visual there of this cycle the story the cycle that exists in the story of Jacob is a cycle that exists in the story of people and I dare say it, it's a cycle which exists in your own life too, and if you're an a parent it will be a cycle that exists in the life of your children now I understand that for me to say this is a, um, oh, it could be a cause of kind of deep sorrow for people. I'm a parent right now. This might be empowering for me. It gives me options, it gives me a sense of ways to resolve this problem. But perhaps for you, that moment has passed. Maybe you look back with a sense of regret, rightly or wrongly. You think, what did I do wrong? What did I bequeath to my children? I want to say, first and foremost, however intentional I am, there are just things about me which I'll bequeath to my children which I will regret in years to come, whether I like it or not. But I want to say there's actually a greater story at play in the story of Jacob than simply like a hopeless description of humanity. Because Jacob's story is actually ultimately a story of God's great work in a messy family like this. That God is not bound by the messiness of a family and his grace is capable of changing the story of a family. God acts in two ways in Jacob's story, just in this little moment, which are sources of great comfort for us The first is that God acts through this story. See, God could have chosen to guard Jacob from the experience of Laban. He could have sent him out into the wilderness, wrestled with him a little bit, and then sent him back. But actually, God allows him to encounter Laban and all of Laban's deceptive ways. In fact, God allows him to... You know, spend seven years working for Leah, then another seven years working for Rachel, accumulating, in other words, no wealth, because he's spent 14 years here. He's accumulated nothing but two wives. I mean, that's a lovely thing. But materially speaking, it's gone no way towards the the real blessings that God described to Abraham. Right? Jacob would wake up after 14 years and feel like, what have I achieved in my life? And then he probably spends another six or seven years working for Laban in order to increase his wealth. And he tells us, he tells his, do- his wives, that Laban repeatedly deceived him through that period of time. God exposes him to all of that. And yet at the end of it, the story is that, A, God has been able to prosper him materially, but Jacob also comes to this great realisation God has not allowed Laban to harm him. God has not allowed Laban to harm him. In a sense, Jacob has to go through this experience to see perhaps his own failings with his father, but even more to see the graciousness and the sovereignty of God in work, at work in his life. God is able to work, even in, Laban's life, uh, in Jacob's life, with Laban in the midst of it. This is such a great comfort for us. And of course, it's the principle that continues through the scriptures. God is not put off by all the failings and deficiencies of people. One of, one of Jacob's sons will be Judah. And one of Judah's four ancestors to come will be Jesus himself, of course. And Jesus, the writers tell us, is a man with no deceit. No deceit in his lips or in his heart. And yet Jesus comes into this family racked with deceit and lies. He stands in a court the night before the crucifixion and all he, all he encounters is lies and injustice. But Jesus is able to stand in that place and redeem that whole family and the whole story by going to the cross. See, the story of the cross is God using the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of humanity, taking account of our own individual sin and stepping in and drawing a line in the sand. When Jesus dies on the cross, it's not God saying the past doesn't matter. It's saying the past matters very much. But I will take on board, on myself, all of the ramifications of that Jesus mopping up all of the failure and all of the brokenness in the world and and the story of Jesus and the story of God's work in Jacob's life is even more than just that even more than just saying I have dealt with the past because God doesn't leave Jacob in this foreign land with Laban you notice the end of the story what does he say he says I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. In other words, I am that God who you met and you bound yourself to. And so guess what? I'm not leaving you here, Jacob. I have to take you back to a better place. And the great story of Jesus is when you bind yourself to Jesus, he is taking you to a better place. He is taking you to a better place. You know, the... The great story of the great fairy tale of Cinderella is the story of a poor woman who meets a prince, right? And who by marriage gains all that the prince has. But at the heart of that fairy tale is our deep longing, isn't it? That someone might take us on in spite of our background and our failings and our mistakes and give us what is theirs so that it's now ours. And the gospel is this great story that that's actually true and on offer from Jesus, if you would bind yourself to him, like Jacob bound himself to the Lord. And Jacob's vow is not perfect, but God is perfect. And Jacob's vow is not consistent, but God is consistent. And so we meet a God in this part of the Bible who ultimately in Jesus will break the bounds of sin and death itself. So that when you bind yourself to Jesus, he is taking you to a new and better place. He's bringing you into a family that ultimately is marked by him and not by you. By truth, not by lies. By faithfulness, not by deception. By love, not by selfishness. So when we read the story of Jacob, I want to encourage us, Draw yourself to Jesus. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is a great moment to enact this decision to bind yourself to Christ, to bind yourself to Christ and say, I want to be in his family and be marked by him and have his past be my future. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us We do not deserve it, but it breaks us out of our own sin. It gives us what perhaps we do not deserve or have not worked for, but desperately need. Lord God, we pray that you would free us from our past by binding us to the Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.